0: Hello everybody and welcome to the latest Mark Leverage podcast, this one being for November 2019. Thanks ever so much for stopping by and listening in and I hope you're going to enjoy the next half hour of topics. And I've got a number of different things I want to discuss with you and I thought I'd start by talking about mentalists. Um, I I talked recently about the difficulty that I think some mentalists must have when they are strolling mentalists and they have to go from table to table and present their mind miracles at the table side. But uh, it's not so much the specifics of a situation like that that I want to talk about this time, but more perhaps applicable to stand-up mentalists as to what sort of character they want to portray and how they're going to sort of make that character entertaining. Because if you think about it for a minute, most people, most lay people, if they're going out to go to a show, they're hoping to be entertained. Yes, of course, hopefully they want to be puzzled. They want to be perhaps challenged a little. How on earth did he know the numbers of my credit card when it's been in my wallet all the time? That sort of thing. But also they, they do want to be entertained. And a lot of the time, that means that people want to have a laugh because, okay, even people who go to horror films still laugh sometimes. They find the, 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 the ridiculousness of it all funny. And so for mentalists, I always think this must be a slight problem. How do you come across as being a serious mentalist in the, in the sense that you want to really impress people with your mind feats, but how at the same time as doing that do you not bore them? How do you actually make it entertaining? Now, there are mentalists who are very well known, of course, people like Graham Jolly, who are extremely funny. And so the question that I was sort of putting to myself is, Graham Jolly is hilarious. You know, if you see him, especially if you see him working for lay people, but even if he's working a room full of magicians, and I suspect he performs exactly the same, whichever um, sort of type of audience he has... He is hysterically funny, if you like his sense of humour, you will absolutely his whole act is awash with funnier sides and comments while he's making you laugh. He's at the same time doing mentalism. Is his mentalism effective as mentalism, or are you so busy laughing at all the gags and jokes that you don't actually notice how strong the effects that he's doing actually are, and they are strong effects. But is that strength reduced because you're laughing? I remember when um, the very first time that I saw Darren Brown do uh, one of his live shows, it was in Bristol, and he had about 2,000 people in the audience. And uh, I didn't really know what to expect because although I'd seen at the time his, his sort of specials on TV... Um, I'd never seen him work live before and I wondered whether the character that he he brings across at the television, which at that time, and probably still is to a certain extent, relatively serious, I wondered how that would come across and whether it would actually be two hours of interesting but slightly boring mentalism. What surprised me hugely at the time was that he was actually very funny. He used a number of lines at various moments But he didn't just use them indiscriminately. I'm sure it was very carefully judged so that the comedy that he brought in, at no point did it detract from the strength of the mentalism that he was doing. You know, if there's a big ta-da moment at the end of an effect, he's not gonna put a big laugh gag just before he does this big revelation. But in the build-up to it, he might well have a number of asides, funny comments to spectators and so on. And that's how you do it. That, to me, was the perfect example of how you judge the right amount of entertainment and comedy and present light presentation, and how you match that with the strength of the of the mentalism that you're actually doing. And I think anybody, people like Graham Jolly, like like Darren, who can who can do this, and who can in some ways almost take the tension slightly out of being almost too impressive and disturbing people with your, your apparent strength of your mind control or whatever it might be that you're doing. By putting a bit of comedy in, people have a good time, they relax. But if you do it right, it doesn't have to affect your plausibility as a mentalist. It's only if you get that balance wrong and you put the comedy in, in the wrong places I think that it then could affect how you come across as a mentalist. For me certainly, I, I like it's a bit like jugglers. I like jugglers who are funny. I think I admired the skill that jugglers use and the amount of hours of practice they must have put in. But to be honest, if if a person just stands there and juggles an increasing number of balls or or whatever it clubs or whatever it might be, then it doesn't entertain me particularly. All the best jugglers are the ones who have self-deprecating humour or have funny situations that they instil because it doesn't detract from the skill that they're using because of the way they use the comedy but it enhances their performance and I think the same is true of mentalists. Many years ago I was booked to do a children's party at a lady's house and when I turned up, it was in the summer, when I turned up, lady said to me oh she said cause it's a lovely day um i've decided to, to um have the party out in the garden now i'm always very wary about performing in the great outdoors there are so many things that can go wrong with it everything from insects to wind to to strong sun and, and so on and so forth but apparently she thought about this and she said um so um, i know it might be a bit difficult for you just to be out in the open so i've um put up a tent And uh, perhaps you would like to come and have a look. So we went through into her garden and she put this quite large tent up in the garden. And inside the tent, she put down a ground sheet and she'd covered the entire floor of the ground sheet with large square sort of cushions. She'd then taken a load of balloons and she'd scattered them sort of randomly around that space as well. And she said, um, I thought this would make um, a lovely area for you to perform in. And she said, so um, how long will it take you to get ready? And I'm looking at this space and I'm thinking, uh, there's all sorts of reasons why I, I don't like this. Um, but I, I'm going to have to think about this for a minute. And um, she said, so um, how long will it take? So I said, well, it'll take me about 10 minutes to get ready. She said, OK, fine. She said, when I bring the children in, I'll sit them down and then I'll give them their ice creams and then you can start. And off she went. And I'm thinking, I don't like the sound of this at all. Firstly, this space, I was going to be doing some games as well as magic. So the fact they had all these big cushions all over the, the ground, although it was perhaps soft for them to sit on, they wouldn't be able to move around very easily. Uh, they would keep falling over them. And the, also there is a chance, if there were some boys, as they're bound to be at the party, that a great game would be to pick up the cushions and hit people with them. And I thought... I really don't want this floor covered in all the cushions. So I made a big pile of these cushions at the back of the tent, as far away from everybody as I could, near where I was going to be standing. Took them all off and just left the ground sheet. And then the balloons. Well, of course, balloons are all very well, but you don't want loose balloons when you're trying to run a party. Same thing. People hit each other with them. They pop them. That's the greatest fun, isn't it, for boys? How many balloons can they burst? And they're an enormous distraction. And I thought, nope really don't want the balloons in here so I gathered up all the balloons and I took them indoors and I said to her "Um, these might blow away or get in the way there's not enough room out there do you think we could keep these inside and give them to the children later and she said oh right okay yes and I said oh and and the other thing is um, when the children come out um, you said you were going to give them ice cream she said oh yes yes I've got ice creams for them so well, actually, we're going to be doing some games, and we're going to be moving around. Uh, so, um, could we perhaps keep the ice creams for when they have their tea later on? And I managed to prevent her from doing that. Now, the point of telling you all this was because, prior to that, in years gone by, I, when I lacked perhaps uh, an assurance in what I knew that really that I would need to have in order to do a good show, I would have put up with the cushions all over the floor, the balloons and the ice creams, and just tried to make the best of it, think, oh, well, she's the booker, you know, she must have what she wants. And I, But since that time, I'd, I gradually got, got to realise that I am booked to do, a hopefully, a good show. So anything that I do that de, or that the booker does to possibly detract from me doing a good show surely needs to be rectified before it has a chance to have a ruinous effect. And so I realised that controlling my workspace and making sure that the area that I was going to perform in was set up as best as it possibly could be for me to present a good show was really, really key. And so once I sort of came to that conclusion, I decided, well, I'm the performer. I know I do lots of shows They sound like they know what they're doing because they're the booker, but actually they often don't really, do they? They don't know what's best. They they know what they think would be nice, but they don't know how that might impact on what we as entertainers need to do. And so from that point onwards, and this was a case in point, I would always if I possibly could, change things if they didn't look right. If the if the person had said to me in a in a particular room or in a hall for a kid's show, we'd like you to set up over there, and it really wasn't suitable, I'd say, actually, that's not a good place. It's right next to the toilets, or it has its back to the main door where people will be coming in. I'd prefer to go over there if that's OK. And often they say, oh, yeah, that's fine. So it wasn't important to them necessarily. They were just trying to help you to help you to get in the right place, but it didn't necessarily mean that uh, they really knew where where the best place was going to be. So I think controlling our workspace and giving ourselves the best chance to do a really good show is a very important aspect of what we do. For the last four years or so, I've been traveling around magic clubs in the UK and abroad, presenting my eClub Pro Live lecture. Uh, The the basis of the lecture is actually is very straightforward. Basically, I take some of the ideas and routines that have been put onto the uh, eClub Pro pages, the members only pages, and I take them, extract them from there and present them and explain them in a club room in the form of a lecture. And the nice thing about this is that because of the the fact that this stuff is um, posted originally online is that there are no... Special props required at least there are nothing there 's nothing that either you can 't easily make up or that you won 't have anyway you know double face cards double back cards that that type of thing so' some very generic things that all magicians can either get hold of or already have, and the lectures have been tremendously successful because i don 't have any associated individual sales. Associated with the lecture, so I don't um, present a trick and then basically you're required to buy it. In other words, it's not a kind of a dealer dem in disguise. And as a result of this, I like to think that the, the lectures give extremely good value. And I've really enjoyed doing them. it's It's been a real pleasure to to take these ideas off the screen, if you like, and make them come to life in a club room. Well, um, having had the, the current sort of a line-up of tricks in the eClub Pro Live lecture for the last two or three years, I'm now putting together and have just completed putting together a brand new selection. And the eClub Ro- Pro Live lecture for 2020-2021 is now available for booking. It's exactly the same format with um, a selection of items taken from the eClub Pro pages, but of course all different material from the previous ones and I will present and explain it in your club room. So if you belong to a magic society and you want a really fun professional evening of magic that you can you'll certainly be able to take away and do because my stuff is is not super difficult by any means. Then please do get your president or your secretary to get in contact with me and let's let's get let's get it arranged so I can come and visit. Lecturing is my absolutely number one favourite thing to do and I would love to come to uh, your club room so if you fancy having me visit and if I haven't been for a while even if I have been recently don't forget all new material in the latest version of the eClub Pro live lecture so I hope to be able to visit your club room soon you know it often surprises and sometimes amuses me as to the way lay people react to the discovery that you are a magician and they say things, and you sometimes wonder why on earth they say them. For instance, if you walk up to a group you say, Oh, good evening everybody, I'm the magician. Quite often, somebody will pipe up and say, Whoa, hold on to your wallets. Hold on to your wallets. Now that's interesting, isn't it? Because here, somebody is associating magic, basically, with pickpocketing. Now, as far as I'm aware... Middle, the magic in the street, if you like, middle, if you like, during the Middle Ages, any sort of magic would be mainly not magic, but more affiliated to perhaps pickpocketing, and maybe from hundreds of years ago, this is where this association that at the same time as we will be entertaining people, we will be in some way getting their wallets out of their pockets or stealing their watch off their wrist. Um, It still is associated with magic. Now, I know there are some pickpockets who do a bit of magic or more likely magicians who do a bit of pickpocketing. That's the more likely way around. But nevertheless, it's not that common, surely. And yet that particular comment, hold on to your wallets or hold on to your watch or whatever, is often said far more often than you would think it would than it would be. So it's an interesting thought, isn't it, the way we are perceived? I mean, how do you respond to that? Oh, the way I respond to it, people say, oh, hold on to your wallet. So I say, well, no, don't worry. I've had your wallet already. I'll put it back because there was nothing in it. You know, you, you can make a sort of passing comment, but I just find that interesting that that is how we're associated. Or they will set up a challenge for you, won't they, when they discover you're a magician. Oh, you're a magician. Oh, can you make my wife disappear? People still say that sometimes, which I find incredible, but they do. Or they'll say something like they'll slam an empty beer glass down in front of you. Can you fill that up? Oh, yes, I can, sir, but not in a way you'd find acceptable. Uh, You know, you you have to sort of back these things away before you can actually get on with, you know, the, the reason that you're there, which is, of course, to entertain them. So it makes you wonder what's going on in people's heads when they're watching the magic. What sort of impression is being given if if this is the knee-jerk reaction? It's like explanations of the tricks that we do. It went up your sleeve. It's all done by mirrors. Really? You know, these things seem to have been around forever, these comments. And despite this fact that you would imagine, with all the amazing magic that people these days are subjected to on TV at the very least, and also in all the live shows that are going on these days, that the association with these simplistic comments would have been banished a bit, re- really. And yet they're not. And these hackneyed images are often, for instance, shown in by the media. If a, if a, the, a newspaper or a magazine is going to do Something, an article about a magician, they will always at some point mention doves or they'll mention top hats and and rabbits out of hats. And you think, oh my goodness, nobody's done that in any sort of numbers for, for years. Why are they still going on about it? So the association that magic has, even though we, we like to think we're all modern performers and we're doing things in a modern way, it's still very hard to break through those old stereotypical images that magic has. And so you will still going to get people saying the things that they say and graphical artists producing into images because it's just easier. It's almost like a default position that you go to when you discover that magic's involved. Really, it's just laziness, isn't it? I've just had the pleasure of reading David Regal's latest book, Interpreting Magic. It's an absolutely massive work. The book itself is physically very large. It's hard-backed. It's over 500 pages long and it is totally awesome. His earlier book, Approaching Magic, was almost as big. And that was 10 years ago, I was surprised to discover. And that's also a very excellent book. But this new one, Interpreting Magic, is even more varied. It has has a lot of David's magic in it of course or routines and and he is one of the few creative people who manages to make every trick that he publishes have some sort of commercial or intriguing presentation and patter. I think in a world where so many things these days are, are sold individual tricks or or even routines on dvds and so on they they, they just give you the idea and, and you just kind of do it but there's no context there's no real presentation or flow or reason and david's magic is very different every time he seems to come up with an an interesting patter line or a funny premise or has a an interesting way of looking at the subject matter that he that he uses the magic to illustrate anyway so the magic's great. He also has lots of um, long articles in which he interviews famous magicians, and it's a who's who of, of the magic world, of of the intelligent magic world, people who are creative and who think carefully about their magic, and he's had very interesting conversations with them. But the thing that I want to talk about is there's another, sprinkled in the book, there's another section where he has various little fairly short essays about all sorts of different subjects to do with magic, a bit like this podcast, only he's put them in the book. One of them he entitled The Need to Fail. And I thought this was a very interesting one. Basically what he is saying is that in order to achieve something good in magic, you first of all pretty much nearly always need to fail to achieve what you are trying to achieve, and it's only in the process of putting it right and of getting things in, into a better order or rethinking the whole premise of something that you end up with something that is truly great. And I was just wondering whether this was actually true. It, I can see how it can be true, but I, it struck me that it's only true of certain people or certain situations. And I'm not sure that it's universally true. Because I I think if, you know, if you were setting out to create a new trick, you wouldn't want it to fail because you thought, well, I hope this is going to go badly because then I'll be able to make it better. Because if you were, for instance, an experienced performer, you pretty much know, most of the time anyway, if you're putting it into your own act, this is whether something is likely to be successful or not. Because the fact of the matter is, if you have a strong uh, idea of what your performing persona or identity is, then if you take a trick and you mould it to that personality, and you're using a method that you feel comfortable with, and you know from experience that it's likely to, uh, to go with an audience, then the likelihood of this thing failing is fairly remote right, there might be very small tweaks or things that you hadn't expected that might happen. But for it to pretty be pretty disastrous and you and need a complete rethink, I'm not sure that that's a good thing to wish for, is it? It might happen occasionally, but it's not something I would be aiming for, that's that's for sure. And then if you are somebody who, who brings a, a new trick into their act and it fails, you might be somebody who doesn't have the magical knowledge or expertise or imagination even to understand a that it has failed and b if it has failed what the heck do you do about it you know because fail doesn't have to mean that you bring out the wrong card at the end is your card the four diamonds no it's the seven of clubs it's not that it might just be that the the presentation fell flat or you didn't get the reaction that you thought so i think to say that that you have to fail in order to then go on and do something better only really applies to people who've got the the wit and the imagination and the experience and the knowledge to look for alternative methods, to think of ways that you could improve it. Because if you don't, then you're not going to be able to make it. That fail is not what's going to push you on because you have nowhere else to be pushed to. You have no way of taking it any further. So I think people who have a self-awareness, people who have a magical knowledge will learn from their experiences. They will tweak things, of course. But I'm, I'm totally sure that nobody ever sets out to fail and they don't hope for a fail. It's if they get one or if something doesn't go quite right. If they have the, the self-awareness to think, oh, now that wasn't quite right, now let me try this. Then I can see that what he's saying is true. But I'm not sure it's something that is universally correct because not all people will react to our failure in the same way. Time now to tell you just briefly about a brand new release that I've just uh, put onto my uh, product lineup this month. It's um, a Premier E routine called Pure Cards Across. Um, this is a way of doing the cards across that is very very simple. It's designed for a stand-up or parlour show or a close-up show, and basically it is a very very clean almost at fingertips-only version of cards across. Two sets of ten cards are very openly counted onto a spectator's hand. There is no false counts or anything like that. The two sets of cards are put into glasses, and one at a time you magically transfer three cards in classic time-honoured fashion from one glass to the other. And then when the first lot are counted, they are now onto the, back onto the spectator's hand. There are only seven in one glass and 13 in the other. So it's the classic pot plot, but... The method is really, really simple, very easy to do. And everything is there, is, there are no, as I say, no special counts, no sleight of hand, no palming, no envelopes, no clutter. It's just the two sets of 10 cards and the two sort of tumbler glasses to stand the cards up in. I really like it. Uh, I I had it in the um, the last version of the Eclair Pro Live lecture. Uh, occasionally I put it into that lecture, not every time, but sometimes I did, uh, and it's also been available for eClub Pro members as well, but I wanted to make it more widely available. So it's coming out now, and it has just been released as a E eRoutine. It costs £10, and you download the PDF file, its written instructions, and the written instructions have a link on them which will also take you to additional online video footage, which is a performance and explanation as well, so you get the best of both worlds. So um, if you're into Cards Across and you're looking for a really uh, clean and easy to do version, then I recommend you go and have a look at the Dem, and that's called Pure Cards Across. When we moved house a couple of years ago, I took the opportunity of reorganising my magic library. I bought a brand new large bookcase. And some of the books, which I hadn't had out on display at all, I used to keep the books in my office, but a lot of them were in cupboards on shelving and they weren't all together and they weren't all displayed properly. So I couldn't just look along the, the rows and pick out what I needed. And I thought it'd be really nice to, to have them out and make them more accessible. So I did. I bought this bookcase and I was able to put out all the books. And compared to some people, of course, I who have massive libraries, I do not have a massive library. But, as I was putting these books out and sort of arranging them on the shelves, it made me realize that I had books there that I bought or were bought for me when I was a child over fifty years ago, right up to books that I have bought very recently, and everything in between i've always i've without as I say buying a lot of books, I have been a steady book purchaser. When something comes along that particularly intrigues me, I will I used I will buy it and put it on and now it's on the shelf. And I realized that actually a bookshelf, a magic bookshelf, it's kind of like almost a reflection of your magic progression or pathway, isn't it? In my case, the sort of books that I started off with, all very trick-based and very very much into secrets, how things are done. And then gradually over the years, As my interest shifted, suddenly a lot of children's magic books started to appear for entertaining children. Uh, And then I started to buy compilations of magazines. I I suddenly realised that things like Apocalypse, um, the magazine is is fascinating, it's full of material. And that the best way was to buy bound editions. So I got bound editions of that and Paul Bearer's Review and Richard's Almanac and this type of thing. So there's a whole section where I went through a phase of buying those. Then you've got other books of f- uh, favourite authors, people who, have, people like, for instance, John Bannon, who I have a, I have a lot of time for, um, authors who I went through a phase of collecting all their, their works because I enjoyed their magic. And then as I've got older, I've become more interested in the people behind the tricks. So suddenly I've got compilations of books in which areas of my bookcase that are taken over by either autobiographies or more likely biographies of people such as Patrick Page, Alan Shaxon, people who I knew, I've known, who I, have, who I saw perform, who I've worked with quite often, and get their backstory. Johnny Hart, that was another one from recent times. All these people are fascinating to me their their backstories what their their magical lives were like and i think all of our probably all of our bookshelves reflect our lives in this way reflect our areas of interest you might look at yours and think my goodness three quarters of the stuff here is books on card magic it suddenly makes you right of course it's because that's my area of interest but i think not only does it show what how your pathways has gone but it also shows the trends in magic, the types of books, the way they're produced, the subject matters—that also is almost like a magical history sitting right in front of you. So it's it's absolutely fascinating, and, and it really—and I, I spent ages trying to sort of reorganise it so that it so this pathway actually meant something in my life, and and it was a lot of fun just moving all the books around in order to make it to do that. Well, there we are. That's another podcast finish. Thank you so much for listening. If you've finished your cup of tea or your glass of wine, you can get up and go and do something else now. And I hope that you will reconvene and join me again in a month's time when we'll do it all over again. Bye for now.